everyone. Hi, it's Dr. Karen Hardy, and welcome to Flip This Wrist. Today, my special guest is Nancy Potok. Now, Nancy is a superstar when it comes to superstars in terms in my book. She is the former uh, statistician for the United States amongst other high-level positions that she's held with throughout private industry and the federal government. But today we're going to talk about the risk-taking and how high achievers actually relate or the relationship high achievers have with risk-taking and how that has influenced you know, your ability and skills in terms of leadership and leading others. So welcome, Nancy. It's great to have you. Well, thanks so much, Karen. I'm really delighted to be here on your podcast and excited to be uh, catching up in these high-risk times. How about that? Very, very high-risk times. And we're starting to see, essentially, that risk management has is really center stage. And a lot of people really don't know that risk management is center stage. But before I dive into that, let's talk a, bit, a little bit about yourself. I did not know that you were a native and grew up in Detroit. Tell me a little bit about that. Well... I was uh, born in, in the city of Detroit. I, I grew up there. Um, it was uh, really a wonderful place to grow up. And um, I'm, I'm a Midwesterner through and through. Yeah, yeah. And um, he have a deep abiding love of the Great Lakes, having grown up mm. in Michigan. Um, so I've always you know, love the outdoors and um, have followed, even though I, um, most of my adult life, I have lived uh, in the Washington DC area. Um, I've really followed the um, rebirth of, of Detroit and how it continues to um, start to thrive. Uh, what, is, what is one thing that Detroit teaches you that you cannot learn anywhere else? Well, I, I don't think there is anything that you can only learn in Detroit. Um, but what what it does make you very aware of, because Detroit is, uh, I think, typical of a lot of cities that um, really had their heyday at the height of manufacturing mm -hmm. in the U.S. for these big industries, automobiles, steel. Right, right. Um, and... I, I think there was a great lack of foresight that those good times could ever come to an end. And um, not a lot of, uh, I would say, risk management in terms of thinking ahead for how the world was changing, uh, how these things were getting global, and anticipating that in enough time to avoid some of these cities hitting rock bottom before they could yeah. uh, start to come back again. So how did you excel from an environment growing up in a Detroit environment that was pretty much defined by manufacturing, but somehow you were able to excel out of, out of that complacency in terms of always believing something is forever. So how did that influence you as an adult in terms of your track tra trajectory in terms of career and who you are today? Um, well, you know, a lot of my friends had parents who worked uh, in some way with the auto industry, mm -hmm. but uh, my parents were educators and they always um, were very uh, strong on thinking ahead right. and uh, uh. 
you know, getting a lot of education and um, really being prepared, sort of thinking about how do I do even better than my parents? Mm. Um, whereas I think a lot of people are sort of like, how do I get the same job as my parents? Oh. Not thinking about maybe that job won't be there because oh, it's well. like they would be there forever. But I think it was really my parents that prepared me yeah. to go on with uh, more higher education and thinking about a bigger future then, um, you know, they always said, we want you to do better than us. So think right. about what's coming down the road. So at a young age, you were already exposed to that mindset in terms of thinking differently for the most yeah, part. I think so. I think so. Yeah, sure. that's fantastic. So growing up, were there any type of major risk that you took, even though they fed you and they nurtured you obviously quite well, what type of risk did you take? I mean, in terms of defining what your life would be from your parents? Well, I took a lot of risks um, as a teenager, most of which I don't want to discuss on the podcast. We, we won't talk about those. We, <laughs> we, all of us have plenty of those stories, Nancy. Yeah. <laughs> no, sorry, we'll let bygones be bygones. <laughs> right. But um, in terms of uh, career risk, for example, um, I really was never afraid to try something new. Um, and I, I, I mentor a lot of people and I tell them the same thing, which is, um, you know, a lot of, you shouldn't just get overly secure in what you're doing. Um, you should always be thinking a few steps ahead. And I always did that. And um, when opportunities came along, I took them. I wasn't right. afraid to change. and. Um, I did do a risk assessment, but when I would think about, well, what is the worst case with taking these personal development, um, professional challenges, the worst case really isn't as bad as you think. There's a lot of ways you can mitigate professional development risk. Right. Um, and so I, I was not fearful in that regard. And, my, my biggest advances actually in my career were when I took those big steps into the unknown. And mm -hmm. you know, not all of them worked out, I have to be honest. Not every mm -hmm. step turned out to be a great step, but if if you think like a, like a person who's managing risk, right. um, got plan B ready if plan A doesn't work out. Right. So you had an early introduction to risk management, but a lot of people do not have, have that same level of consciousness when it comes to risk. They don't even know that they are actually doing, you know, risk management or managing risk. How did that, uh, I, I'm assuming that actually started to show up in your career. When you talk about you've uh, uh, mentored many people and, you know, inspired them to take a risk, how did that actually um, impact you as a leader? How did that play out as a leader? And you've managed some, you've been in some really fantastic and big organizations. Yeah, so I would say the opportunities that I had to make a difference for other people and the organization really happened at the Census Bureau. Mm -hmm. um, I worked at the Census Bureau twice in senior executive positions. The first time um, I was the chief financial officer. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you learn a lot about that kind of risk yeah you do um, and also though i i had a, a another uh other duties as assigned which were quite big so i was in charge of 
the IT, the field operations, and all the administrative support for the 2000 census, uh, where there's a lot of risk involved there. Um, and then I came back, I left the Census Bureau. I worked in the private sector for a while. In um, 2012, I came back to the Census Bureau as the deputy director. Right. And um, trying to manage the risk of getting ready for the 2020 Census while significantly re-engineering it. So in those two positions, one, I was in charge of a lot of people, very large organizations mm -hmm. and billions of dollars. So um, when I came back the second time, uh, enterprise risk management as a concept had really just started to um, enter into the federal government right. consciousness. And I know, yeah. Karen, you, that was where we met when you were at the right. Department of Commerce. And um, I tried to institute enterprise risk management uh, across the Census Bureau, particularly in light of all of the re-engineering that we had to do to get ready for this census that's this under right. right now. So I, let me just put a commercial in here. Everyone, if you haven't filled out your form, go online and fill it out now. Yeah, because you can do it online now. That's yeah, the, you can yeah. do it online. That was one of the things we re-engineered. So, that was um, a lot of foresight that went into that too. Yeah, there was. And um, we we really um, did a lot to try to minimize, thank goodness, uh, the number of people that would have to go out door to door because right now that's very much, uh, you know, a high risk venture. And the Census Bureau mm -hmm. just put out an announcement that they were pushing back the in-person operations by two weeks now. Right, right. Um, so yeah, you have to think about those things. In the um, I, I was at the Department of Commerce actually in 2009, and that was when H1N1 was big, and we were doing wow. a lot of mitigation planning then. So I would say that is one aspect of risk management mm -hmm. where I had a lot of hands-on responsibility for a large organization for a critically important operation, and really literally involving hundreds of thousands of people and billions of dollars. Um, but also, one of the things that I really cared a lot about while at the Census Bureau was um, helping people with professional development. And a lot of people came to me uh, for advice on their careers. And I mentored a lot of people, even though I was kind of busy as the deputy director. And right. um, what I found most was fear. People were so afraid of making a change. And so I think putting kind of a framework around those those professional decisions that um, has the elements of risk management in it can really help people overcome that fear and make more um, well thought out rational decisions that actually propel them forward. But for mo most, I love change, but many, many people, people. are afraid. Yeah. yeah, a lot of people are afraid of change and they are very, as we call it, risk averse. They aren't as comfortable as you are with, you know, dealing with the risk, looking at the opportunities and then determining what the trade-offs are and then making a actionable decision. Now, you've seen a lot of organizations and you've been in the presence of leaders that do not make actionable decisions or they may stumble when it comes to actually managing risk in these yeah places and people may be surprised right. to know that in these c-suites 
in these organizations, a lot of leaders have, you know, challenges when it comes to dealing with risk. What are your thoughts about that? Um, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And really, there's nothing more frustrating when a leader can't make a decision um, because, again, of this fear of making the wrong decision. Mm. Um, and I think that's a skill that some people really have to work hard at learning if they're going to be leaders. Um, I, I've worked for people who are very indecisive. Mm-hmm. That's, um, well, it's frustrating for me because I, I think most people who know me will tell you I'm pretty decisive. <laughs> Not afraid of making a decision. Right. Um, as long as it's well thought through. And again, there's some mitigation behind it. But if people don't really have an approach, this is a skill you can learn. Even if your personality is a sort of a dithering kind of personality, mm-hmm. you can learn to do this. You can and learn I wish, to do it. Yeah. And I wish more people would. Um, you know, in I think what you find more is in the private sector, people um, are pretty decisive when they're entrepreneurs and they've started their own companies. They don't mm. very far unless yeah. they're, they're good at managing risk and making decisions. I do think that in a federal environment, the problem is that taking risks uh, is not rewarded. Making the wrong decision can be very harshly punished in multiple ways. And so that natural fear that people have is yeah. um, emphasized. And one of the things that I really had to do at Census when I was trying to really push a lot of organizational transformation was to tell people don't be afraid of failure. Um, If the leadership can look at failures as learning experiences rather than okay we have to punish you. Right. um, I, I think it helps people develop along the course of their career so when they get to be a leader they can emulate that. That's that's a major point that you made um, in terms of the failure piece. So I know that you spoke earlier about yeah you made some 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 decisions as a teenager we won't talk about. But you did mention there was some point uh, you know when mis uh, you know mis uh, uh, misconception that you didn't make a decision and didn't work out. Can you recall an er- a time when it was a failure or another word for failure? It didn't work out and then how did you pick yourself up from that? Well, I did make a couple of uh, career choices that weren't that great. Um, I think I don't I don't want to say which agency, particularly, but right. one of my first jobs in government was not that great of a fit. Um, but uh, you know, I I did some research and and I just moved on. I think when you right. do, that, especially in job choices then um, you really have to uh, just be prepared to sort of take your losses and and move on. And move on, yeah. And sometimes it involves going back to school or sometimes it just involves starting to look for a job. And I, you know, I have all, what some of those things take is an optimistic attitude. In other words, when you try something and it doesn't work, then um, 
you move on to something else and there can often be an even better opportunity. And I will, I will give one example. So why was I at the Census Bureau twice? Well, good question. Good question. <laughs> why were you at the Census Bureau twice? Well, I love the Census Bureau, but um, after the 2000 census, I was just very burned out. Mm -hmm. um, and so I could have stayed there, but there was, uh, you know, a new, new director came in and I just really needed a change. And that was a risk. I left government, um, you know, and I had really spent a lot of years in government. Uh, but the things that I learned when I went to work outside of government were phenomenal. Right. And, um, you know, I never thought I would come back to government. And I certainly didn't think I'd come back to the Census Bureau because I was kind of burned out. This, the Census can take a lot out of you. Mm -hmm. And, um, but I, I kind of had a chance to learn more, rejuvenate. And then I was asked to come back. And, and when I came back, it was just, you know, a whole different story because I had so much more that I had learned to bring to the job. Mm -hmm. And um, I think, you know, whether it's a personal career decision or a decision that you make in an agency, I mean, I, I've made, I think, some decisions in an agency that didn't work out that great. But when things don't work out, you sort of, you do have to have alternatives. I mean, you might go with a contractor, for example, right. who's not a very good contractor and mm -hmm. you, you know, you do the best you can and you learn from that and you move on in the next contract you do, you know how better to kind of assess what you want to get out of that. Right. Um, but like I say, it's hard um, in the work environment. It's, it's very hard to take risks in the federal government. Um, but so you when you mentioned the entrepreneurs, for instance, I know I, I do. I've, I've talked to many people, even through this podcast, who have been or are entrepreneurs. And I think the difference between the successful ones and the ones that do not make it is decision being very decisive, as you say. And those who aren't decisive just aren't around anymore, for the right. most part. But but however, in organizations, if you're not decisive, those same people are still in the organization. What yeah, do you well, do about so something like that? I do think that the leadership of an organization can set up an incentive system um, that really um, can make a big difference. So let me give an example. When I was at the Commerce Department, and uh, Karen, you probably um, have experienced the same thing. So at one point, there was a Secretary of Commerce who was very interested in risk management. And um, when I would go into meetings, what we'd be told was, listen, if you have problems, you need to bring them to the attention of leadership. Mm -hmm. That the risk is not saying anything. The risk is seeing something's not working and being afraid to talk about it. But we're setting up kind of a, a reward system where if you are, bringing these things forward, you get all the help that you need to address these problems. Mm -hmm. But if, if you knew something bad was kind of happening or impending and you didn't say anything out of fear of looking bad yourself, that's when, you know, 
that's when you start okay. to do bad things happen yeah. to you. But is that, a, is that an individual response to how a, a mindset about risk or is it a cultural issue? Is it no, an individual cultural. or cultural? It's absolutely cultural mm -hmm. because you have to have leadership in the organization that encourages people to come forward uh, early enough that uh, problems can be addressed before they become big problems. It's much easier to deal with little problems than big problems. Um, and nobody in a federal agency wants to learn about a problem because it was in the newspaper. Right, exactly. Or because it came out in an IG report or something like that. I mean, you want your own staff. And I encouraged people to be like that too. I thought that was such a good model to tell people, look, nothing bad is going to happen to you if you unearth the problem and you need resources beyond your control to address this we you know that's why you have leaders in the organization is to help address these problems the, but if you if you don't say anything then you know it's bad for everybody and it hurts the organization and right. um that doesn't help you in your career either it certainly doesn't doesn't help at all so, you know, I've always said that, uh, you know, I see that a crisis is actually an opportunity for a teachable and learnable moment. What do you think we can learn from the current crisis that we're facing right now? Oh, my gosh. Um, I'm sure there's a million lessons, but, you know, the type of responses, some people are panicking as other folks are, you know, feeling, um, losing hope in a sense. But um, I think you will agree that a lot of this is risk management. So what's the teachable moment for us? Um, I think the teachable moment is really to be well-informed, first of all, um, be able to sort out um, actual true information from uh, misinformation. Right. That's number one, because without good information, it's very hard to make good decisions. And, you know, I'm a big data person. Right, exactly. And, uh, so knowing that you're basing your decisions on uh, kind of high quality information that you can trust is very important. And I think uh, the kinds of things that I've seen flying around on social media uh, is a real mixed bag. Um, so I would say one, make sure you've got good information and really, you know, verifiable. Um, two, then you have to really um, think about the risks. I mean, it, it's not a bad idea for people to kind of, um, you know, if, if the way that they think about these things is a little more concrete, you know, where you can make a matrix of mm -hmm. um, you know, use those same techniques about what is a high impact event versus what's a high probability of it happening. Um, and But make it more in terms of, um, you know, I would hope that the people at the organizations in the federal government right now who are really managing the response are doing that, and I think they are. Um, but if you're trying to make personal decisions, you can do the same thing. That's very That's transferable. Right. So, you know, how how even a decision about do I go to the grocery store um, you have to sort of look at it in terms of 
well, are you in a high risk category? Um, how many other people are you around? Um, how many people are you likely to um, encounter when you go out? Right. Uh, those kinds of things. And, you know, it's very, it's very different for individuals, but there's no reason why you can't, you don't have to panic. You just have to assess risk. I mean, that's, to me, this is the sort of the um, quintessential risk management um, occasion. Yeah. Where the every level of government is assessing risk and making decisions and every person should be doing the same thing, but doing it based on good data, not just yeah. on emotion. But you mentioned so many things that are so relevant to an organization you know, looking at good data, you know, there's a lot of mixed information. Companies look at mixed information, need to validate the information all the time. They need to consider the source. They need to sit down and do a, a risk assessment, you know, refresh where the risks are, uh, especially during a crisis. It really exposes where your vulnerabilities and weaknesses are so you can plug the holes for, you know, maybe the next time, because this isn't the last time we're gonna, you know, face a risk uh, at this, you know, worst case scenario. There's variations of risk all the time. So we need to be prepared to deal with that. Right, well, and then you also can't forget, you know, we're not just, I mean, right now, I think from everything that I've seen where we are in the country, we are on a particular trajectory that we can sort of change at the margins at this point. You know, this whole idea of flattening the curve, but the curve is still there. Um, but we need to be thinking ahead a little bit as well. Um, so I'm gonna make a plug here for the federal statistical agencies because I think it's really important that we understand that, for example, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, um, mm -hmm. you know, should really be enabled to keep very good track of not only what they've been doing with the unemployment rate, but what's happening with people getting back to work and um you know what about education and the kids who are home from school for a month well we have the national center for education statistics mm -hmm. we have the national center for health statistics mm -hmm. and they are they really need to be able to keep track of what's happening um, because they do provide very good high quality data and we're going to be making a lot of decisions. I mean, we can see this legislation that was recently passed to give people a cash infusion into right. bail industries. But how do we know what's really happening and how effective those things are? A lot of that is data that's collected by the statistical agencies and collected by the states. And so we really need to be thinking about how do we want to be looking at data? Do we, what data sets do we need to combine? Right. and just get over the bureaucratic hurdles of getting that done so we have good information. Well, I do want to stipulate and make sure people understand that I think this entire situation we're in has been a melting pot because we have pretty much leveled the field when it comes to learning risk management at this point. Everyone is at step one. Uh, if you haven't been exposed before, you've been exposed now. And I think me as a risk management professional, you yourself in leadership positions, we understand that this is a, a, a great learning opportunity for a lot of people to begin to institute risk management 
within your organization. It doesn't matter what size your company is. It could be one person, two people, 10,000 people. It's, you know, the rule applies because we all have to manage risk and we're all being impacted by it in, in different ways. And I did want to circle back quickly in terms of the risk-taking part and in, in terms yeah. of a personal perspective. Do you think risk-taking is, is, is a transformational act or is it was it a selfish act? I mean, how has it influenced or touched other people in your in your life path because of those risks that you've taken? Look, I I think um, again, it's a matter of degree. Mm -hmm. uh, if you have small children at home, it's probably not a good idea to go out bungee jumping. That seems like it might be a selfish decision. Right. Um, but if you have an opportunity to take a new job and you don't have to move your family any place that's in the same city, that seems a very reasonable risk to take. Mm -hmm. So um, some risk taking on a personal level can be very selfish. I, I think it's selfish actually for a lot of uh, younger people to right now to think, oh, from what I've heard so far, which is turning out not to be that true, by the way, that young people don't get affected by this virus. Therefore, I feel like I should be able to go out and mingle in crowds and go to bars um, because I'm personally, I'm not gonna maybe get that sick. And that's based, that's a, you know, that's a selfish decision. Right. I would say to take that risk for mm -hmm. on multiple levels. And I think most people can figure that out. Mm -hmm. um, so it, I guess my answer is really it depends. There's no single answer for whether risk taking is selfish or not. But is it transformational? Uh, for you, has it been? Yes, always. But you know, I embrace change. <laughs> not everybody does, but if people can overcome their fears, I think it is transformational. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't want to go through life as a fearful person you want to go through life as a person who manages risk in a well-considered way so you don't lose opportunities due to fear but you don't uh, foolishly put yourself in harm, harm's way that's right and it eventually plays out in other places in your life you know right. personal life and also in your professional life the way you make decisions about risk-taking in your personal life can show up with you on your job Right, when it's time to make those critical decisions, it starts to show up. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, Nancy, just to wrap this up, is there anything you wanna leave with us in terms of, you know, flipping your risk and, you know, in your favor or in, and especially during these times? Um, yeah, again, I would go back to what I said before, just to emphasize, make sure that when you're making decisions, you are basing it on solid data and not on emotion when it comes to risk taking because your emotion uh, can really lead you in the wrong direction. And a, a lot of decisions turn out to be counterintuitive, but they're data supported. So if, you, if you're relying just on how you feel and anecdotes, um, you, you could end up really headed in the wrong direction. So data, data, data. It's definitely the key. Data is the key. I would have to agree with you. It does have its place, but intuition also has its place as well. And yeah. I think it's, yes, yeah, it's, it's really a, 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 a huge combination of a little bit of both. You have to be able to use your judgment to determine which is 
you know, useful at a certain time, yes. right? I, I mean, I, judgment is really key here. I'm just saying you shouldn't, you know, it's not good to make decisions when you're in a panic. You should mm -hmm. prepare ahead of time so you don't get into a panic state. Absolutely. I totally agree with you. And so, listen, I want to thank you, Nancy, for joining me today to talk about Flip This Risk and share your uh, amazing experience and mindset and thoughts about, you know, what risk is and how we manage it and risk taking your relationship with it. It's going to be uh, beneficial to so many people. I want to thank you again for joining me. Well, I am just delighted to have the opportunity to have this talk with you and um, thank you for inviting me. And thank you everyone else for joining me on Flip This Risk. I'm Dr. Karen Hardy and I'll see you next time.